Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good evening and welcome to the History of Germany podcast. I am Travis Dow. And in case you haven't noticed, the last couple episodes have been covering peoples that have been conquered by the Franks, because we haven't gotten to the Franks yet, but um, before these peoples disappear forever in history or take on different roles altogether, we're covering them. So anyway, this is this episode is important because the Franks would then later um, preserve the Germanic tribes in the names of the regions they later ruled, um, previous people did not do this. They would just name it whatever they wanted. The Romans would you know, name it whatever they wanted. Uh, some names were preserved. Um, but the, the Franks, like we'll see later, really liked the whole collecting titles thing. Um, which would then, you know, bring us into the Middle Ages. That's that, that becomes a medieval thing with collecting heraldic shields and these things. So the, you know, the Franks would start the precedence of um, being the Duke of Burgundy, the King of France, the, um, you know, Count of Franken, um, Saxony, Frisia, Lombardy. All these names ended up being preserved after the original Germanic tribes were long gone in either French or German. Um, even uh, Frisians kind of stayed put. They're they're the great example which we talked about last episode. Um, I love this part of this is one of my favorite parts of German history, which is the kind of maritime history of the northern of the North Sea and the democracy of the Frisians in the Middle Ages, which is fascinating. Um, which then kind of you know the the spirit of the people stays, and you know the Dutch and Flemish kind of have a similar spirit later. We have. So, you know, I would recommend the last episode of Frisian Democracy uh, if you missed it. And the reason I'm doing these episodes is because, you know, where does the word Lombardy come from and Burgundy and, and all those? So that's what we've been talking about the last couple episodes. Who are these peoples that, spoiler alert, the Franks all conquered? Because that's, I, I haven't been emphasizing it as that, maybe, I don't remember. Um, but yeah, that's what I've been trying to get to is is um, when I do talk about the Franks, you can just know what, you know, you know what I mean when I say they the Lombards or the Burgundians or whatever. These were all Germanic peoples that eventually died out, okay, in the centuries to come. The Lombards, I'm giving them their own show because they are they're later than the Visigoths, Burgundians, they're later than the invasion of the Franks into the Roman Empire in 406. They're centuries after this. In fact, we talked about the Visigoths, Ostrogoths, uh, Vandals all plundering Rome at various points. But anyways, if you've been listening to this show, then, okay, the Lombards ruled Italy when they basically took it from the Byzantines, who had taken it back from the Ostrogoths, which we talked about in a previous episode. But to go further back, um, the Lombards, the people that we're now talking about, their descendants were already mentioned in the show before because they they basically probably formed part of the Suebi in the first century, were totally related to that. Again, not one tribe, but more of a confederation. Suebi at one point meant basically all of Germans. People just used the term loosely in the Roman Empire and centuries later. But, you know, in the first century probably came down along with the Suebi from southern Scandinavia, so related to, to them, um, a West Germanic tribe, and before the migration period, a couple centuries later, we basically see them in modern-day Austria, north of the Danube. And when they saw the Byzantine power vacuum in Italy after the Ostrogoths had left, the Lombards then saw their chance. And, in fact, when they marched into Italy, they marched in almost completely unopposed. By 572, they had conquered the towns around central Italy and now established their Lombard kingdom. This Lombard kingdom would later be renamed Kingdom of Italy. And Lombardy in northern Italy, where basically Milan is, that area gets its name from this time. So a really, inter you know, really important part of Italy, really important part 
for the history of the world, history of science, history of art, history of architecture, everything in the Renaissance. That was all like Florence and Milan and all the all these cities in, Lom in Lombardy and Tuscany and northern Italy. But where did the Lombards get their names? That one's actually not as much as a mystery as, as many of the others, because in German, maybe it's more obvious, it's Langobaden, and it's basically like the long-bearded ones, the long beards, and we could be done, but there's a cool legend about the how they got their name, so um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna mention that. The Origo Gentis Langobard Dorum basically uh, tells the story of the people of the Longobards, of the Lombards, and um, it, when they were still a small tribe called the Vinili, or the Vinili. Vinili? Well, that's how it's spelled, uh, with a W. Basically, when they were in the times when they were still in southern Scandinavia, in fact, they referenced the, the Vinili, the, I'm going to call them Vinili because, oh my goodness, uh, but the Vinili first dwelt near, uh, in southern Scandinavia, they're also referenced in the Codes Gotanos, or Goth. I think they did have a TH at that time. They lost it later. Um, now moving into the extreme boundary of Gaul. So we have that kind of in, in later uh, Gothic works. And the Vanilli were split into three groups. And basically, I don't know, overpopulation, different rivalry or tribes splitting up. They, they basically went three different ways. Anyways, one of the now three tribes, one of the tribes headed towards the Baltic coast. Um, maybe, or the garden, or the, the Bardengau on the, towards the Elbe. One kind of became the Vandals, perhaps, according to this story. And the other was just really stubborn. This Winnelly tribe, when offered the chance between tribute and war, decided on war and, re you know, refused to bow to anybody in this proud Germanic manner. And the Vandals prepared for war and consulted Godan, the god Odin, basically, this, the same god. Um, and Odin answered, Godan answered, that he would give victory to whoever he saw first at the sunrise. So the Winili, who were actually fewer in number, also now prayed to the goddess Freya, the, the same goddess as Frigg, who advised that all the women should tie their hair in front of their faces like beards and march in line with their husbands. And then at sunrise, Freya turned her husband's bed so that he was facing east and woke him. Okay, so when Godan awoke, he spotted the Winili first and asked, who are these long beards, right? Because the women had their, yeah, okay, had their hair, okay. And Freya replied, my lord, thou hast given them the name, now give them also the victory. And from that moment on, onward, the Winili were known as the long beards, basically Latinized as Langobardi or Italianized as Langobardi, Langobards, Lombards, uh, in German, still Langobaden. Uh, if it was modern German, it'd be like Langbatic, Lang Langbaten. Uh, so it's not really like modern High German, but yeah, Langobaden. Um, so yeah, so we in the first century. Okay, so that's how they got their name, according to legend. I would just say, why not? They just got the nickname from having really long beards, and leave it at that. They didn't like to shave. Um, but yeah, Godon naming them is is awesome too. So why not? You know, and the um, Romans mentioned them in the first century. They get, again, they get lumped in with the Suebi and are said to live on both sides of the Elba. So, you know, if you look up where the Elba is, around there. And when they entered Italy, now on their march south, some Lombards, um, they weren't all Christianized yet, basically. Some were still pagans. Some were, I would say the majority were Aryan Christians. And so the, you know, the Catholics in Italy obviously did not like this so much. And I don't want to go into so much detail because... The Visigoths and Ostrogoths and Vandals were all the same. Those were all Aryans. Um, and in fact, so why did the Franks all get involved next episode? That's because the Franks were Catholic. So the Pope, you know, would just say, I've, we've had enough of the, of the, Lung, of the um, Lombards. Get them out of here. But at this point, okay, they still march into Italy. They, some, after some centuries, obviously by the time, so the Franks don't come until the 8th century, end of the 8th century, um, which means that they have a good two, two and a half centuries to have their kingdom of Italy, their kingdom, their Lombard kingdom evolved to the kingdom of Italy. And um, it's quite a long time to kind of establish oneself and, and intermingle with the people. The pagans pretty quickly then converted. Um, some Aryans converted to Catholicism, but not all. So it was, um, but the, but the, the chroniclers of already at the 7th century write that they lost their, they 
they discovered shaving, they, you know, lost their long beards, they started to wear a Roman dress, dress and also carry Roman titles. And the same thing that we saw with the Visigoths, Ostrogoths, the Franks, and Saxons, and everybody else. So um, th- we, we do have this documented also that the Lombards really did do this. And, and I mean, there's still, you know, there must still be Visigoths, uh, there must still be Ostrogoths or Vandals or some people, well, Vandals didn't really stay, but uh, Ostrogoths living there still. So yeah, really, you know, it must have been a blend already at this point that there's, there's many different, there's, Italy was certainly used to Aryans living there for centuries now uh, and dealing with Aryan Germans, Aryan Christian Germans. So um, another, uh, another interesting point here is the wars with the Slavs in the 7th century, 600s, these Slavs really show up for the first time in Western, like in Western, Western history. Um, I don't want to make a bunch of Slavic listeners angry here, but um, they it's the first encounters with these Lombards in northern Italy, and it's these wars that actually would set the border as kind of where the Slavs maybe started running out of steam and got fear, you know, the first real resistant resistance from the Germans in the west of to the west of them, and these borders between the you know Lombards and Slavic tribes would be the borders of Germanic, you know, German speakers and Slavic speakers to some degree to this day. I mean, that hasn't really changed. So it's an interesting little footnote that the Slavs arrive on the scene right during the Lombard kingdom, their Lombard kingdom of uh, kingdom of Italy. And so that's, you know, later when we mentioned the Slavs, when we mentioned the Franks and Slavs, yeah, Franks are already fighting Slavs. Slavs are already there. Uh, Franks are fighting Hungarians. Franks are, you know, there's already other peoples now um, other than Romans and Germans. So we start, we now have the beginning of a kind of different branch of history, one that involves Slavic history. So for the Lombards themselves, that does kind of mark the beginning of the end in the 8th century, Lombards are still doing very well. Um, The last king of the Lombards, Desiderius, Duke of Tuscany, manages to take Ravenna from the Byzantines and kick them out of northern Italy. So they actually expand. They're expanding at this time. And he decided to reopen struggles against the Pope because, you know, he can afford it. He has the power now. Um, Who was, the Pope was supported by the Duke of Spoleto and Benevento, against the Lombards and entered Rome in uh, 772, who was the first Lombard king to do so. Okay, so the Lombards were in northern Italy for forever. Um, but yeah, 772. Okay, but when Pope Hadrian I called for help from the powerful, because guess who else is alive in 772? Uh, the This Frankish king, young upstart still at this point, named Charles, who's later going to be Charles the Great, Charlemagne, Charlemagne, and Desiderius was defeated at Susa and besieged in Pavia, while his son Adelchis, I guess is how it's pronounced, Adelchis was forced to open the gates of Verona to Frankish troops. And Desiderius surrendered in 774, so just a couple years after his invasion of Rome, and Charlemagne, in this utterly now, this is really cool. This is a really nice bullet point in the history of the Franks, which is in a totally novel decision, decided to add um, the title of King of the Lombards to his own title of King of the Franks. So instead of just saying the Frankish kingdom now includes all the way down to Rome, uh, he says, no, 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 I am, I am King of the Franks, and that's my realm, but I am also King of the Italians, and that's my realm. And that's so important because the Holy Roman Empire exists because of this. Everybody, now this title gathering really, really starts. Everybody's in on it after Charlemagne. Um, they want to be a king of Aquitaine, king, king of Burgundy, king of Italy, king of Germany, king of France, king of... Just collect them all. And once you have enough, then you can claim to be emperor of something. Emperor of France, emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, emperor of... Uh, emperor of the Germans uh, later was accepted. Um, so yeah, all it just... So this is kind of where it starts. That's why. So the, the conquest of the Lombards in Italy, that's where we start to see the title gathering. Um, Charlemagne wants to be king twice over. 
Anyway, so Charlemagne set the precedence with becoming king of the Lombards. But he did this in his coronation. He took another really uh, interesting, something that became a relic, something that became a really high status for future German emperors and um, kings of Italy, etc. And that is the very famous Iron Crown, the Iron Crown of Lombardy, um, also known as the Corona Ferre Ferreira is both a relic, like I said, and um, it's one of the oldest royal insignia of Christendom, let alone Europe, but of, of Christendom itself, because it's, um, so it goes all, at least the legends go all the way back, um, and I'll, I'll get into the modern research and the stories and all that in a second. It's, it's just a really cool artifact. Charlemagne taking it becomes a huge deal in Frankish history, and then the Holy Roman Empire. But for being so important, it was kind of thrown together and fixed a few times over the centuries. Basically, the raw materials for the crown are a gold armlet, so not even something that goes on your head, but around your arm. And actually, we'll find out that possibly for a princess, so a dainty, well, I don't know if how dainty, but, but a, a small girl, really. And then the center would be an iron nail, which is, you know, why it's called the iron crown. And I think it's really important to note that it is really small. Even now, there's been additions done to it, and it's still really small. You'd have to attach it to a veil to wear it as an adult on your head, and that's what they did. It was clearly never meant to be a royal crown for a king, and it was either a crown, it could have been like a diadem, or you know they had a diadem incorporated into it uh, out of an armlet. I mean, th this piece of jewelry kind of you know, grew and grew, but it, it, you know, with the Byzantine origins, but again, it might've been a crown for a princess, um, or an armlet, like I said, but what is known is that it was made in the early middle ages, consisting of a circlet of gold believed to be fitted around a central iron band. And I said, believed to be, because that's that's important, and I'll talk about that in a second. Um, so now, according to legend, that iron band, that nail, was beaten out of a nail of the true cross. So one of the nails that Jesus was crucified with. That's what they they had it melted down and made into a ring, kind of, and then this gold was embedded around it. Um, so that's how it became a relic also. So the king would wear it on its head and it, and it had power because it had a, a relic embedded into it as the foundation. If you want to go see it, it is kept at the Cathedral of Monza outside Milan. If you want, it's still there today. And this crown became, so the, the symbol of it became bigger and bigger. It became a symbol for the kingdom of Lombards. Then when Charlemagne took over the, this medieval kingdom of Italy after the, the Lombards were long gone. Um, so a Frank, you know, Frankish one and then Roman emperors. And the iron crown is so called. And so outside of this iron circlet, it's really small. It's like just a, a couple of centimeters and um, like one centimeter uh, like width, you know, it's a really small iron band. Um, and the outer circlet of the crown is six segments of beaten gold and they're partially enameled and, and they're joined together with hinges um, and set with 22 gemstones, which are kind of sticking out from the whole thing. So I don't if you look at, if you look up Charlemagne, you'll see this. He's wearing the iron crown sometimes. Um, it's basically different sections of gold, little gold panels all head, held together with hinges and then um, you know, the, the this iron ring kind of holding it all together on the inside. Now, some try to say that it was actually bigger and that there was two sections lost and then repaired, and there was something added to it. So some say it did fit adult heads, and then some two sections were lost, So, uh, but that's strange. Um, according to another story, now, okay, this, so this um, nail, this is where the iron crown relic myth comes from. And this, this is one of the nails given to Emperor Constantine by his mother, St. Helena. Now, remember, St. Helena went off to Jerusalem to discover the true cross, and it's a fantastic tale, and she actually found it and, you know, brought it back. And anyways, um, some were incorporated into a diadem and mounted in Constantine's helmet, another fitted to the head of a statue of the emperor, a fourth melted down. So, I mean, that has this, you know, supernatural aspect to the these relics, like they're, they're 
their their good luck their they're actually you know whoever owns them should have power kind of beliefs that are associated with these so they're they're passed around as like really really expensive objects like some of the most expensive relics in Christendom in Europe period and so through Constantine one makes its way to Princess Theodelina who made it into a little crown, more of a ring, but then had gold at it to make it into a crown. Now, why the nail was put in and when exactly this crown fell into the hands of the Lombard kings is all unclear, but some, you know, so now Theodelina becomes queen of the Lombards, um, lives in Monza, where the crown is now, in the 6th century, and helps convert the Lombards to Christianity, and therefore perhaps donated the crown to the Italian church at Monza in 628, where it was preserved. Now that's that's still, again, where, where you can see it today, and um, I'll get back to Monza a, a couple times. Uh, now a different tradition says that, that the helmet of Constantine were brought to Milan by Emperor Theodosius I, who resided there, and they were shown at his funeral, described by St. Ambrose, and then... As the bit remained in Milan, oh yeah, one of the nails was turned into a bit um, for Charlemagne's horse. I forgot to mention that, <laughs> but it it yeah, it's still there in the cathedral. The helm and the diadem was taken to Constantinople until Theodoric the Great, who basically threatened Constantinople previously, as we saw in a previous episode. He demanded these things as part of the you know basically the Italian royal crown, the royal treasury. He demanded these specific objects and wanted them back in Italy. So, um, and we talked about Theodoric the Great. So the Byzantines sent him the diadem, but kept the helmet. So this diadem, you know, which already had this, was this powerful symbol, basically made it bigger and made it his own crown. So we have Theodoric the Great involved in the legend of this this thing and and it's him that kind of creates the iron crown as Charlemagne then would would know it and as all the Lombards would use it so it goes from the Goths to the Lombards and then to you know Charlemagne that's that's that version there's there's other stories um but but anyways importantly is that along with these myths and legends one thing that really made it important and let me give you a spoiler here so you know where I'm going with this why am I talking about a iron ring for so long well, Napoleon believed these legends. This was um, this iron crown was used at Napoleon's coronation of when he became the king of Italy in 1804, 1806, whenever it is. Um, so he thought it was important. So that's why I'm going back and telling you all the legends of, of why it, how it got to be that, how it had to be that reputation. Uh, because we do know that, as, as a matter of fact, Napoleon put the, the, the crown on his head during his coronation in 1806. So why? why did, so why did he choose this crown? Okay, that's why I'm telling you this story. And he chose it because, like my history teacher growing up in Germany, um, you know, tried to paint the picture of Charlemagne's coronation as the king of the Lombards that, you know, he then put the, he used this uh, crown along with the holy lance which also um yeah is is a relic that we've brought up before and the, the crown was certainly in use for the coronation later like in the 14th century um even presumably since the 11th century and the manufacture of the crown has been dated to the 8th or 9th century. So that's during uh, Charlemagne's time, and it, so it was probably owned by him. But it's not really clear how important the crown was to Charlemagne himself. So later kings, obviously, would make it seem more important to make its value go up by stating its, its history with Charlemagne. And, and, you know, this is the crown that Charlemagne took and used in his coronation and all, of the, all that. And that's why Napoleon wanted it too, because it was such a symbol of power. But there's other hypotheses out there. So um, Louis the Pious may have originally possessed the crown and left it to her son, um, to, to his son. And, you know, it made its way to Monza through one of the major church benefactors, basically. That could hold some water because there's also there's other objects in the cathedral that go along with the crown, like a cross and um, other you know similar styled objects. So it was part of a bigger set, um, which never really became part of the you know crown jewels. So that's so you know clearly it was there's more history to be found there of where it came from. 
Um, the Imperial Museum in St. Petersburg in Russia has a collection of two medieval crowns found in Kazan, which I just brought up in the, um, where did I bring that up? In Bohemican, I think. Yeah, in Bohemican. Cyril and Methodius went up to the Kazan Kaganate. Um, it was found in Kazan in 1730. And it, those are made in the same style and are the same size as the Iron Crown. So the legends that they lost pieces might actually not be true. They might have always been that size, even though some panels were added. So maybe they lost some and then added some to make it the same size again. But there was no, yeah, I mean, it wasn't ever bigger because the ones in St. Petersburg from, yeah, I mean, anyways, they're the same. So there's there's more of these. And now why would they be in Kazan? Because they're Byzantine. So it's, you know, it's definitely a Byzantine made crown. Probably no doubt about that. I don't. I don't know if there is doubt about that or not. Um, but some. But then there was additions from a different style with a different alloy. Um, so the earlier Byzantine one had copper. This later Frankish one not from the ninth century. So clearly eight or ninth century construction in some ways. Um, anyways, so it it goes down in history. It starts to get this reputation of being Charlemagne's. Iron Crown of you know and and by then it already had the reputation of of having the nail of the Iron Cross, and it was used as coronations now. Certainly by the 1200s we have records of it in the 13th, 14th century, but probably not before. So my fourth grade history teacher in Munich, Germany, growing up, she lied to me. It's not true. Charlemagne probably did not actually have the yeah. I mean this probably popped up a little bit later. Um, that's just, it's, there, it's so murky, it's not clear, so uh, d- be wary of definitive statements here in the early um, history of the crown. But there's, um, so the veneration of the crown, because it has one of the nails from the true cross in it, that really didn't start happening until the 17th century, because, uh, so the popes and the papacy started really studying this, 1715 really, um, the Vatican finally allowed the Iron Crown to be displayed publicly for veneration, like as a relic. So, but they never actually said that the iron, the nail in there was in fact from the true cross. They that that essential point, like the thing that actually makes it holy, they didn't confirm or deny. They said no, we you know we we're not gonna we don't know. So, but they did allow the object to be venerated as a relic. Now, later, Archbishop from Milan said, okay, the iron ring in the Monza crown should be considered as one of the nails of the Holy Cross and as an original relic. So it was worshipped as such, venerated as such, I should say. Now, the, the weird thing is, the, the, the suspicious thing is, so an iron nail should rust and corrode and all these things. And yet, after centuries of public veneration and people looking at it and touching it and getting near it and breathing on it and uh, all this stuff, the inner iron ring did not corrode, not one iota, which that's odd. So yeah, that is actually kind of suspicious. And then not until 1985 did someone ever go, hey, wait, let's test, let me just try a kitchen frickin' magnet and see if it attracts the, you know, is attracted by the iron ring. And it was not. So it was noted in 1985 that if it's iron, well, it's not magnetic iron, which is weird. So that should, you know, throw on some doubt. But then in 1993, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about that, uh, those results in 93, because that kind of gives us, shed some light on the actual story. Um, that finally revealed that the ring is made of silver, not even nominally one of the iron nails from Jesus's cross. In no way is it a holy relic other than that it was one of the crowns of the Holy Roman Empire, you know, emperors, which means nothing as far as really, as far as the church is concerned. So everyone's just a big fat liar. It's not an iron crown. It's not, it's not even iron. It's not even a crown. I'm just kind of angry. So, but anyways, that doesn't matter because people in history did revere it as such, uh, because like Napoleon wasn't allowed, uh, Napoleon wasn't alive in 1993. That's not his fault. So in fact, 34 coronations with the Iron Crown were counted by the historian Bartolomeo Zucchi, Zucchi from the 9th to the 17th century. And he counts Charlemagne and beginning with Charlemagne. Now, actually, in fact, like I said, that's not true. What 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 is more likely, according to the Encyclopedia Britannica, the first reliable record was 
um, Henry VII as king of Italy. And then later coronations, so then there was important ones. There's Charles IV in 1355, um, there was Charles V in 1530, and then Napoleon in 1505 from many other ones, and then uh, Ferdinand I of Austria in 1838. And because Napoleon thought the myth was true, this is why I spent so much time uh, clarifying the legends of the crown, okay? Why Napoleon thought it was so great, because he basically saw it as, you know, it was a relic and Charlemagne, and I need to have that on my head. But it's really an armlet. So, <laughs> and Napoleon's coronation was, you saw, on May 26th, 1805, Napoleon Bonaparte was himself crowned King of Italy in Milan. And it was a huge, you know, magnificent affair. And it... Uh, and the the Iron Crown was kind of the height of it, so that's that's why I wanted to bring it up. Um, and then because of of you know Napoleon, that would again set a precedent. So in Austria, annexed some parts, uh, annexed some parts of Italy. They you know did this coronation also in 1816 and and so on. And then there was this tradition that at least since the 10th century, basically when these Roman German kings, basically German kings, Saxons, Franks, and Habsburgs, and so on when they would travel to Rome to be crowned Holy Roman Emperor, well, they would just stop off in somewhere in northern Italy, Milan, or, or um, but not necessarily somewhere else uh, sometimes, and stop off and on their way, go ahead and have themselves crowned King of Italy too, using the Iron Crown. So this part of the tradition was also kind of neat that, so you you know, German becomes of age, so he says, okay, off to become emperor. So first he becomes king of Italy and then off to become, you know, Holy Roman Emperor. So this 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 happens. Uh, some, like Charles V, decided to cut, cut, cut time, not have two masses, and just get both crowns done at once in one sitting in, in Bologna. Generally, that was the thing, is you go, you go to Milan and then you go to Rome and you come back king of Italy and Holy Roman Emperor. Now, the last person to be crowned was the previously mentioned Emperor Ferdinand I, and um, his coronation was in Milan, September 6th, 1838, and that was it. No more after him. No more coronations with the Iron Crown. Um, then there was Austria, you know, wars between Austria and Italy. Austrians withdrew from Lombardy in 1859. The Iron Crown was moved to Vienna, but then 1866, it was given back to Italy after after the Third Italian War of Interdependence, and only then does the German part of the history of the Byzantine, of this strange Byzantine uh, holy artifact, come to an end. Then it really truly is an Italian-only uh, artifact after that date. Austrians are done with it, German emperors are done with it, it's, it's, it's back to the Italians. Okay, so real quick about the fines in 1993. What actually happened? What is the crown really? Um, so again, it's not iron, it's silver, it is not a nail from the true cross, all that stuff's legend, but Napoleon didn't know that, so we don't blame him. Um, yeah, it clearly showed uh, x-ray fluorescence analysis, clearly showed that, um, those are the radiocarbon date and all, all that stuff. So first of all, they found out that some of the panels were created in the 9th century um, and were different alloy, like I said. Some, and then the most parts, I guess, the strange plates, actually, the oldest part, are from 500 AD. So that is, you know, closer to the time of Theodoric and the queens of Byzantine and all that stuff. So it could be. Now, the normal plates are around 800 AD. So it could be that Charlemagne had, you know, this armlet, this Lombard thing made into a Frankish crown. Okay, and then later it was just, you know, it, legend took over. So that's possible. That's probably where it came to be. Like some early Frank Charlemagne or one of his sons, you know, made it bigger. Okay. So now the iron nail is actually 99% silver, like I said. There's no iron. In fact, the reason it's called the Iron Crown was that in 1159, there is a record of something, of it being referred to as the Iron Crown and an iron ring, but probably iron as an arc, like like that other crowns had of the era, that, that actually goes up, you know, vertical, um, to strengthen it for support, not around it. So, and that, that part was later removed when the silver was added. So that's why Iron Crown 
Um, no, yeah, it just, and then legend took over again. So yeah, people just like, oh, I mean, <laughs> it's just all fake, all lies, all, all crap. Uh, it's not iron at all. Okay. So when was the silver part added? Probably 1345 to reinforce some of the hinges, which were already given way. The hinges, the hinges were like pure gold and silver. So not that strong to start with. And they had been weakened over time. So some of the plates are two plates. In fact, are really just held to gil together by the silver band, which is now believed to have been added in 1345. And so only after that did people start associating, I mean, yeah, so it gets complicated. Um, uh, so the legend just grew and grew over the centuries by Napoleon's time, basically. But but even in the 14th century, chroniclers are describing it as small, as, you know, that's that's always being used. It's a small thing. And like I said before, it's gem encrusted. There's seven red garnets, seven blue corundums or sapphires, and four violet amethysts, and four gems are made of glass. For almost no reason whatsoever, it shows up in Moby Dick. And there's a G dream sequence where Captain Ahab is wearing the crown for some reason. He imagines himself in this grandeur and he's wearing the iron crown of Lombardy. Um, that's what it says in the book. But anyway, so to kind of get back to the Lombards themselves, enough about this crown, this object. Let's talk about what happened to the Lombards, because even after Charlemagne came, I'm going to talk about that. Um, I'm doing, we're doing a crossover show between lesser Bonapartes. Um, if I haven't said that already, I'll, I'll bring it up again at the end. But um, for Charlemagne, we're doing a crossover show. I don't want to spend a ton of time on the Lombards when we talk about Charlemagne. That's why I'm doing that now. So anyways, long story short, Charlemagne comes in, takes over. Um, pope is happy, gives more of the Lombard land to the popal, the papal estates, to the Pope. And what happens to the Lombards? Well, first of all, the Franks don't conquer them all. The Lombards south of Rome stay independent and, and um, go from dukes to start calling themselves princeps, like princes. And in German, that would be Fürsten. Because um, I don't know if it's clear to English speakers, but principality is is where you know a prince rules a principality and a principality does not necessarily mean a royal prince like the son of a king the way it often does in english and so in german you can be a fürst so it's a totally different word which means first um it, i mean in old english we had this too uh, a first a, you know first among many a first would be a um the leader the chieftain and in german this word just stuck so the franks would say fürst but in Latin, it was princeps. So we start to see these principalities, okay? The Franks come in, conquer the kingdom of Lombardy, but not really all of it. And those that remain really start to have, to become independent, like, city-states. And we see this then in northern um, Italy also, when the, you know, the Germanic, the German influence becomes less and less over time. And the Italians, you know, Milan and, and all these become city-states in the Renaissance. But at this time, the Lombards really become Fürsts. And so really quick, Old German, that still existed, first. And I might say that now and then on accident because I, I don't like to say Prince all the time because there is the, in German, that would be a, you know, like Königsprinz or, um, you know, like the, uh, like if you say Prince, then it really means from the royal family, like the person that's going to inherit stuff. And in English, we kind of get our terms more from, Norman, French aristocracy, and German evolved maybe different. British also evolved totally different um, before the Normans came. But then, you know, the, the Franks went off in this one way, and the Holy Roman Empire ends up being very different than France. And the Holy Roman Empire ends up being very different than England. And why and how it's different. So just to give you a small taste, we already start to see different feudal sort of names, titles being used. Everybody wants to be Roman. Um, but in the Holy Roman Empire later, we have, so Fürstentum is a uh, principality. We have bishoprics, bishopric Fürstentums. So somebody that is both a prince and a bishop. So, you know, Bischof's Fürstentum, a Bischof Fürst, right? He, so he's the leader. He's a, you know, it's almost like a, yeah, yeah. So he's not necessarily a theocratic leader, but he is, he does hold power in the church and also holds land. So yeah, that, that happens in the Holy Roman Empire, um, maybe more than other places. 
specific people that then later elect the emperor. So a like a Kurfürst is a prince elect. A Kurfürst might be more than a Fürst because this prince actually votes for the emperor. So he has that additional power, you know, in the Holy Roman Empire. So, but don't confuse them with like a duke with an archduke because those also exist. So a Fürst is not the leader of a duchy. Those are dukes. A uh, duke would be like an Herzog, so an archduchy would be a Herzog tomb. Um, I don't need to. I don't mean to give you a German le- lesson, but again, so it gets more complicated because then, of course, there's a Graf, like an Earl, um, and then when you get to Graf, there is Land, Mark, and Pfalzgraf. So you could have, uh, yeah. Uh, so, you know, a marquee, a mark grave is somebody that pr- protects a border area. Okay, we talked about this in, um, oh, which episode? Whatever. I, I mentioned mark graves before, marquees. Um, that's kind of how Austria started later. That's how areas near near the Hungarians started. So we mentioned this this later. So, but there's, yeah, there's Kurfürst, Bischofsfürst, Prince, Pfalzgraf, Markgraf, Herzog, Erzherzog, um, König, Kaiser. By the end of the Holy Roman Empire, this evolution just makes things really complicated. So I, at some point, I'll define these as it becomes relevant. Okay, but in English, you know, you could basically say a prince-elect, a bishop's prince bishop prince yeah i guess i don't know you know as opposed to a crown prince okay and then uh, count palatine would be Pfalzgraf. mark mark grave exists in english like marquis you could say um a herzog is an earl or a duke at herzog is an archduke so yeah i mean we'll 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 make this all work it all it all works but um in england no one elected the the king it was just strictly hereditary but in in Germany, in the Holy Roman Empire, you do elect the emperor, and it ends up being more and more the Habsburgers and uh, the Habsburgs and, and those later. But but anyways, yeah. So it it it's it's different even than French nob- nobility, and their roles in court would all be different, and you know their roles in taxation and how much land they could have and land rights and how they controlled peasants. It's not exactly one to one. It's all different to some degree. And even these relationships early on. So, a, the like, let's take the an example of uh, Benevento. So, if the Franks come in, okay, so they're a count to the Franks, but the Duke in turn demanded tribute from the Duchy of Naples, who was still Lombard, and then later a Norman, and they were nominally loyal to Byzantine, part of the Byzantine kind of sphere of influence. So it's, you know, so I guess at the bottom of the totem pole was Naples, who was paying to you know, both the Franks and the uh, Byzantines. That's kind of, you know, but but anyways, you had to kind of be master of chess to figure out all these principalities and, and who was loyal to who. And I think that just changed. People were, um, I mean, no one got hung for treason because people were probably had cross loyalties and, con- and conflicts of interest all the time through marriages and and tribute and taxes and all these things. So it gets really, really complicated. This is where it starts to get really, really complicated to some degree. The Franks just, yeah, they always um, complicate things. So we do have Sicilians still ruling themselves. Uh, There's a Napolitan culture, Roman, Milanese. Um, there, there, I would just, I guess I would want to make a point that there's no Italian culture at this point by any means. So there is, you know, the Franks call themselves king of the Italians, but some are independent. Some belong to Byzantine. Arabs will come up now and then and, and invade places. Um, there's not, no such thing as a unified Italy. There won't be until like the 19th century. There's no such thing as a unified Italian language. And there won't be until like the 19th century. Um, ask an Italian, you know, if you ask their grandparents if Italian is a language, they would say, no, it's probably just, you know, Milanese dialect that they teach you in schools. So uh, the idea of Italian as a language is a pretty new concept. None of this existed at the time. So the, uh, the, the Lombards themselves, they were already half taken over by the Franks. Now this in the south, they started to lose ground to the Byzantines. Um, then the papacy itself, and then the Normans came, and that's basically that. The Lombards, 
The Lombard states, these little principalities in southern Italy, stuck around as long as they did because they were basically happy to switch sides to whoever conquered them. So when the, the Normans came, they just, you know, they saw which way the wind was blowing and, and were happy with that. But the Normans now really left their stamp and actually expelled the Lombard noblemen and really wanted to consolidate power in southern Italy. And we do, as so the kingdom of Naples after the Normans becomes a totally different thing. The Lombards that were left, basically, you know, they were these cultured Italians now. They saw the Byzantines as oppressors and the Normans as barbarians. They were the ones that if, if they were losing wars, it's just because they were too cultured. They were too smart. They were too artistic. You know, they, they really thought themselves as like the pinnacle of civilization. Um, unlike the, the Franks who were coming in from the north. But it was the, the, the Lombards for a while really took that Italian, the, the Roman really torch and carried it for a couple generations until the, the you know, Germanic, Saxon, Frank uh, emperors would try to do the same. But they were, I would say. I mean, I would, I would say the Lombards ended up being very, very cultured. They really wanted to be Roman towards the end. Um, they were mostly converted to Catholicism by now. By the time the Normans came, and and I would say you know literature and culture did indeed flourish under the Lombards. The Lombard language became extinct, but now really quick, the Lombard language is really interesting for a couple of reasons. So here's just a quick couple of bullet points on interesting things of note for the uh, Lombard language, namely the Cimbrian and Moceno uh, dialects may represent some aspects of the otherwise totally extinct language. It started to decline in the 7th century, like I said, long before they were conquered. And at this point, um, or this this point is vital, I think, because the Lombards, I think, basically thought themselves just too good for their own language. They just, you know, they thought they were so cultured now they should be speaking Italian like Latin. As rulers of Italy, they were now just too cultured to speak a Germanic language, and they let their own language die out. And yeah, I mean, in a, in a, you know, the Franks would do the same, others would do the same, but in a, in a move that was like, they're more, you know, to show that they are more Roman than thou, they just preferred Latin. And this precedent that is, you know, basically important to the whole history of Europe, because they, you know, this encouraged the whole Catholic Church to, you know, Latin didn't die out as fast, and then, you know, Italian lived on, rather than starting to speak a Germanic dialect more and more. But no, like the Lombards took this to an extreme. They would, you know, speak Latin in an, in an exaggerated way. They were really trying to show that they could speak Latin very well. And then, of course, you know, getting rid of Latin later would be many, many landmark events in European history. So just the fact that the Lombards are setting this precedent and helping the church do this um, is interesting. Now, Lombard, if you had a time machine and you wanted to hear the language, you could probably hear it in small amounts all the way up to 1000 AD, uh, but it was already dying out before. So, but but 1000 AD, if you want to hear Lombard, you can, you know, just, just go back that far. You could probably still hear it. And if you did have that time machine, that would really come in handy because we don't know that much. The Lombards were ashamed of themselves, ashamed of their language to some degree. So we don't even have enough linguistic evidence to figure out what branch of Germanic the Lombards came from exactly. Uh, but in High German, there is a vowel shift that later really defines this Old Middle German. I mean, that you know, from from Old uh, German to Middle German, like Old Middle German. The difference is the vowel shift, okay? And this vowel shift spread from south to north, and it's really what makes again what makes modern German, what differentiates Middle German from Old German. And unfortunately, the Lombards didn't write anything down, so we don't know. But they only wrote in Latin, and they spoke a mix. Um, and even kind of Italian as time went on. And so we only have written records of what this Latin text quoting snippets of something said in Lombard. But that vowel shift is really noticed in those snippets, meaning Lombard may actually be where the vowel shift started. And it was then carried, it was kind of um, cool, I guess, <laughs> literally. Like it was it was a fad to speak like the, the Germans in Italy. And so this uh, vowel shift kind of headed north and spread later. And then, you know, the Franks, I guess, thought it was cool. And the Franks uh, and Saxons shifted um, their vowels to sound more like the Lombards. Possibly, maybe. So that could be some uh, Lombard influence that is still felt in Germany today, actually, this vowel shift. 
Anyways, it might not otherwise be related. It's just that, you know, it just took over because they were in Italy. And, um, yeah, it could be that the Lombards were just cultured enough that other other tribes paid attention and kind of followed what they did uh, culturally. And, and uh, that's the way Germans sound the way it does. Who knows? But I figured the Lombards deserve a mention because of that, if, if that's the case, uh, as far as the German language is concerned today. And as you might be able to imagine, if they were able to influence the Franks and other Germans way over on the other side of the Alps linguistically, they almost certainly influenced the Italians themselves a little bit. And in fact, one piece of the puzzle as to why Latin died out and what we call Italian, yeah, this is an oversimplification, but the way Italian was born is due to the Lombards. They stopped using all words for Latin and started using some of their own words. And some of those words came from Lombard. So, like, there's um, the pile, like, yeah, bica, like, a pile. Um, you see some similarities with, like, Swiss German and some, like, uh, lower, like, upper Bavarian German. Wanzia, um, like, wange is, like, your cheek. Yeah, that's clearly a Germanic word. Uh, schlagen, busare, is, like, to hit. <laughs> Bossen is an old southern German word, I guess, is to, like, hit, to uh, punch somebody. The bench where you sit in German is called a bank, like a bank. And in, and in um, Italian, it's a panka. And that's funny because in like really southern Bavaria, you also hear someone say like punk, you know, like instead of bunk, bunk, punk. Um, so, yeah, it is kind of that that same influence. Pazzo can mean like crazy. Pizzo, like a bison, uh, a, a, a bite. And of course, last but not least, gnocchi, you know, those Italian little dumplings. You had to have suspected that those were really German, right? Because the word is. But, but the Italians, on the other hand, may have given the Germans and us our word for beer, because birra may actually have come first before bia in German, and, uh, you know, which comes from the Latin word to drink. And there, there's all kinds of other theories, like because beer and brew might be cognate, so then there's boy, which is a really old German word. So, so who knows? Anyways, um, but, but Germanic folks, besides brewing, would, would say ale for beer, al. So that which is, you know, not quite the same as modern ale. It was unhopped. Uh, yeah, anyways, who knows? Like maybe maybe Italians gave us the word for beer. Maybe not. And to give you guys a little bit more insight into just the, the culture of the Lombards and their cities and what that would have looked like if you did have a time machine and can kind of walk around the, nom the Lombard kingdom. Now, imagine that, first of all, they did not inherit Rome at Rome's peak. They inherited Rome at, at Rome's low after Rome's lowest point, really. So they, they inherited a crumbling and depopulated Italy. It's this crumbling and depopulated Italy that would later give us our city-states of Italy. And, and the Lombards already kind of have this, like they would have these weird city-state-ish islands in their own home country in, in Germania. So... Uh, that's just kind of what they kept that going when they took over Italy. And then that's just, you know, the Franks didn't really stop that from happening. And that, that's just, you know, so each city had their own. It was every just government was run at a city level. That's a good way to put it. Um, lesser men would call this period the Dark Ages. We do not use that term on this show. But that's why. I mean, it was just, you know, you might be it, like in Rome itself. You could you were surrounded by ruins. You could tell that. A far greater age came before the one that you're currently in, and you know that's that would be you'd kind of automatically wonder what happened before. But anyways, we I mean we saw in previous episodes that the the vandals knocked over the aqueducts, um, the the last of the Ostrogoths really wanted to just like totally annihilate Rome. So the, I mean this is where the Lombards come in, and this is what they find, you know. Uh, it's it's all in ruins. It's been rebuilt here and there by the Byzantines, but it's it's a shadow of its former self. And so, I mean, literally, the the Citta ad Isola, the city as islands. This is characteristic of the Lombard countryside. Then, you know, Pavia, Lucca, Siena, Arezzo, Milan. These were there was no higher government in reality. Of course, they were under kings and emperors and all this, but really, they ruled themselves. Uh, they had old Roman city walls, and they could defend themselves in a siege if they had to. Often not. Often they, they lost uh, when the German emperor did come calling. Um, but yeah, this is 
you know, Italy was in shambles. Now we start to see some basilicas and, and churches being rebuilt. But really later, the Franks, Lombards too, but there's not that many Lombard um, buildings left standing to this day to point to. The Lombards really did have this dystopian future kind of thing where you would have sheep pastures inside city walls. But you can you can go look up. I mean, they last for a while in like Capua and Palermo, Salermo and Benevento. And there's the Lombard kings. And they go on under the Franks until the Normans, like I said, finally put an end to them. So there is a lot of like history there of a Lombard count from Naples or from, you know, somewhere else in southern Italy popping up in history when you thought, oh, wait, didn't Charlemagne conquer them a long time ago? Yeah, no, not really. Benevento, for instance, which was one that, that lasted on, um, even so they lasted until after Charlemagne, they were still Lombard. But previously, like in the 7th century, they were still doing pagan rituals. So they're still, so there's this, you know, they're from considering themselves like super, um, cultural and, and Romanized, and now they're all Catholic. Like in the seventh century, they're still doing Roman, uh, I mean, pagan rituals. So like one of the last to be converted, really, other than the Saxons. And there was, of course, pressure to have a united Italy to be able to defend yourself. So there was, a, for that reason, there was pressure to convert to Catholicism. And a couple more interesting things that the Lombards left behind, kind of their legacy, is if you're interested in the history of the church, um, cities like Milan and Benevento had interesting uh, church rites that hung on for a few more centuries that, you know, had their, orig had their origin with the Lombards and even, you know, the Aryan aspects of Lombards, like uh, from Arius, but they, they made their way into the uh, Catholic Mass and, and held on for longer than the Lombards themselves did. And another one is architecture, because even though um, most buildings that are still here today that the Lombards built have been remodified and rebuilt so many times, it's it's almost some of them. It's really impossible to actually fully comprehend what the Lombard structure looked like. Um, but we do know that basically what you know, we would later call this style is Romanesque because they would emulate what the Romans did. And they, you know, they saw vaults and arches and, um, you know, the, the Roman, uh, like methods and they tried to copy it and it was Romanesque. Like you, you know, you'd be able to tell if you look at a slightly later Frankish and Saxon Romanesque buildings, then you know what I'm talking about with the Scott, with the style, you can uh, Google that, you know, look that up. But it was the Lombards that really started it. And then it was the Franks and Saxons that just carried it on. Um, the Franks directly when they conquered the um, Lombards. And then the Saxons kind of took over northern Italy from the Franks at one point. So that's, you know, it went on for a while. And then um, it was then replaced by uh, Gothic architecture. And Gothic is really more, you know, Frankish, Saxon, you know, German, uh, French kind of uh, a style Whereas Romanesque really started with the Lombards, but there, it's just hard to get that early history of the Romanesque style because it's all been, you know, today it's all Baroque and Rococo and Renaissance, and it's just been rebuilt so many times over the years. You know, in the few remaining sites that was even built in that time period, most of it's just gone. On the other hand, what you can still see today is uh, the Lomb Lombards were or got pretty good at jewelry and metalworking and that kind of thing. And some of their artifacts survived, were never really destroyed just over the centuries and kind of spread through Europe, um, you know, with noble families and the way European history is. And, and those are kind of sprinkled around museums uh, in the world today, especially in Europe. So if, you know, if you do a Google image search for like Lombard jewelry or Lombard art, um, I recommend that. It's actually really cool. I mean, they, they, they show a very kind of high level of sophistication, which reflects their culture. This reflects it in art and so forth. So, um, okay, that's all I got on the Lombards. Basically, they, um, you know, they, they basically have at some point died out. It was the Normans that, that finally uh, killed the rest of them. Um, and they're just, you know, the population just interbred with uh, the Franks after them, the Normans and and wherever they happened to live. So there was no place else for them to go. They just, you know, they're still in Italy today, genetically speaking. Um, and they were a minority. I, I should say, if I didn't say that already, they were a minority compared to the, the local Italians, even though it, Italy as a whole was completely depopulated. 
Lombards were still a minority. So now you're ready. Next time, Franks. Okay. So I have a couple of other episodes that are not chronological, but um, just the way things turned out, I'll be recording with the Lesser Bonapartes about Charlemagne. And before I publish that, I need to talk one or two episodes um, about the Franks in general. Before Charlemagne, like the Merovingian dynasty, um, and then, you know, Charles Martel and, and, and so on. So then Saxon episodes are already written. Uh, I think it's three episodes. And that brings us into the High Middle Ages and the Kingdom of Germany. So the History of Germany podcast is a member of the Agora Podcast Network. This month is uh, Tom Daly's American Biography as the podcast of the month for Agora. Anyways, um, Germans put a Byzantine princess's armlet on their heads and called themselves Kings of Italy. And because they did that, Napoleon did too for some reason. And that's history, folks. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.